0: Welcome to Seek Go Create. This is where we redefine success in leadership, business, and ministry. We have great conversations, great stories, great guests. Today is no different. I'm so glad that you're here. Before we jump into the guest, though, I'm gonna ask a big favor of everyone, and that is, if you haven't done so already, make sure you go to seekgocreate.com. That's seekgocreate.com. And just check in there. We've got extensive notes on every episode, resources links to any of the materials or books or anything that's mentioned in the interviews we always have that on the web page for the episode you're gonna you're gonna want to go check that out and if you haven't already done so make sure that you give us your best email address so that you can just stay connected we will not blow up your email inbox but about weekly we'll send you an update and let you know what is going on we want to hear from you and uh, i'm glad that you're here welcome. Let's dive in. We've got a content-rich interview today. We have Warren Rustand as our guest. And let me tell you, when I was reading and studying up on Warren, I was blown away by just all that, uh, all that he has in his resume and everything. So this is just a condensed version of it. He has served as a member of the board of directors for over 50 public, private, and not-for-profit organizations. The range of these organizations is from multi-billion dollar companies, public companies, to mid-size, early stage, and startups. As CEO, he has helped make three, take three companies public, two of which are among the largest in their industry. But this is something that's really cool. I think this is an attention grabber for me and probably for you. He actually joined the staff of Vice President Ford on the day he was sworn in back in August of 1974 when the vice president became president. Warren was asked to serve as Appointments Secretary and Cabinet Secretary to the President. He is also the author of the recent bestseller, The Leader Within Us, which we'll discuss in detail here. Warren, welcome to Seek, Go Create.
1: Tim, thank you so much. I'm glad to be
0: with you. It's been a long time
1: coming, but I've been waiting for this discussion with you today. I think we're going to have a lot of fun.
0: Yeah, I believe we're going to have fun too. And I actually could have read just incredible amounts on your bio. You've got such a rich and varied background. Almost all of it points back to leadership. But before I get too far ahead of myself, I like to ask this question. I like to pretend that you and I just bump into each other and I'm gonna let the listener listen in on this. And I just say something to the effect of, Warren, it's good to meet you. What do you do? What do you typically tell people when you bump into people like that?
1: Well, the short version is that I lead and scale organizations mentor leading CEOs and write thought leadership books.
0: So lead, repeat that for me, cause I'm writing notes here.
1: Okay, so I lead and scale organizations, mentor leading CEOs and write ideas and thoughts uh, for the thought leadership around, uh, thoughts around leadership.
0: Right, and, and, and I love, I love all of that, and we're going to go into that deeper. But one of the things that was just fascinating, Warren, and just so you know, I did just finish up my read of the leader with the leader within us. Really, just a few minutes ago, I started reading it last week, and I kind of sped up a little bit towards the end there. So, last few points there, but um, excellent, excellent book. And I think you packaged a lot of the principles of leadership, really, all in in one space. There, we will be discussing that in detail, but. One of the things that fascinated me is it seems as if that you have been in the leadership arena, I'll just categorize it as leadership, almost your entire life. Would, would that be a correct assessment? Is that a good observation?
1: I think it's a fair observation. That, and it's probably because opportunities presented themselves, not because I was outstanding. It's just because opportunities presented themselves. Right. And so starting back when I was 15, 16 years old in high school, being elected class president, student body president, being captain of every sports team I've ever been on, I've been captain of that sports team, student body president, at the University of Arizona, where I went and got my college degree, and then really became a CEO for the first time when I was 23 years old. So it's that opportunity to step into situations that present themselves, not always because I was the best prepared or the smartest or anything else. Anybody who knows me will tell you that wouldn't be the case, but it's the opportunity when presented to accept the challenge, to take the next step in our lives and learn and grow and change. And I've always been excited by that. So I've always taken on things that I had no right to take on because I wasn't well qualified and then try to figure them out along the way. And so leadership has been sort of a constant in my life for a long period of time.
0: Right. Warren, one of the things that I gleaned kind of early on in the book, and you, you just brought it up, is there was a quote at the beginning, and someone made a statement, and I, this actually really touched me. I'm sorry, I don't even write down the name of who it was. I could actually pull the book up here. But someone made the comment in the testimonial section that says, Warren is the most humble, generous, and selfless Leader, I know, and I think I just saw it on display there with the way you responded. You, you real quickly went from basically sharing that you've been in leadership roles since teenager, all the way up to current, but you did it in such a, in such a, I guess a, a non-arrogant way. We're in we're in an age where arrogance and leadership sometimes goes together. I don't think they should. And so um, the question that I want to ask around that is, is what would you say when you see that someone says Warren is the most humble, generous and selfless leader? I know, obviously, I don't think you can argue with that, but, but what does that do for you personally? I, that's, that's quite the compliment.
1: Well, I probably, I mean, it, it's, um, it makes you more humble uh, <laughs> to, to even be thought of that way. I mean, it's just extraordinary. There's some remarkable remarkable people I've had the opportunity to associate with in my lifetime who are so humble and so dedicated and so kind and so generous, right, that it pales in comparison to what I do. So um, I do my best. As I study leadership and as I think about leadership, Tim, uh, the five most important leadership qualities, I believe, I think the first one is humility. I think it starts with humility. I think the greatest leaders that I've been around have been people who are the most humble, the most self-effacing, the most understanding of their own limitations. And certainly I am, I have lots of limitations. I make lots of mistakes. I've had lots of failures and I've done stupid things, um, you know, and, and I try to learn from them and recover from them and be better the next time. But I think humility is the first and listening is the second. I think the more we listen and ask questions, the better we become. I think you do that great on this podcast. I think you're really good at that, asking great questions. And I think that's really important. The third is the ability to communicate our ideas, our thoughts, presenting them in a way that are acceptable to others. The fourth is EQ, right? It's this notion of emotional intelligence. It's how do we socialize ideas and socialize socialize with people? How do we interact with people? And then the fifth is IQ. Yeah, we have to be smart enough, but most of us are smart enough. We're going to be okay. We don't have to be genius level to be successful. That's certainly true in my case. I'm not genius level. No one who knows me would ever say that I was a genius. But I think this notion is that we continuously learn, continuously grow, always changing, always embracing, allows us to accept and assume more and more and different positions in our life that hopefully will always help others. I think I've always been in the business of trying to help other people be successful. And if if I can do that, then I think, uh, then my mission is served, right? If I can make people better, that's good.
0: Right, right. Warren, all those things are great. I made notes on those. And I think we're going to circle back to them. But there was one of the things I I guess there's, there's so many things that we see some people that have done in the past leading organizations, speaking, teaching, things like that. But there's something that you have experienced that, uh, to me, is somewhat unique. I've never spoken with anyone who's worked within the Oval Office who sat with presidents, the leaders of our country, and and you've been able to do that. So to me, I would almost be a little bit negligent if that was one of the first things that I didn't ask, just to share a little bit about that experience. I will say this, you you shared in the book a time that you did almost kill a president. I'm going to let people get that out of the book, so don't give that story away. They're going to need to read the book to get that. But um, but if you could talk to a little bit about the, that role and what you learned from it, maybe even weave in, I think, some of the five points you just brought up. I would just love to hear more about that because I really i am a few years younger than you. I was in uh, probably finishing up elementary school during Gerald Ford's term and all that was going on in the country. It was a very kind of like today, very trying and unique time for our country. And you were sitting right there with the front row seat. Tell us about that.
1: Well, I got there through a nationally competitive process called the White House Fellows Program. And so I competed against thousands of other people um, for one of 20 or fewer slots as a White Mm -hmm. House Fellow. And the year I was chosen, there were 17 of us. And we all then interviewed with various people in government to get our position. So I interviewed with the president, the vice president and so forth. And and, um, I was to go to work for the vice president. As it turned out, Spiro Agnew, who was the vice president to Richard Nixon at the time, resigned from office. So I'm wandering the streets of Washington, a man without a vice president. It was a terrible feeling, right? Uh, And then Gerald Ford was named. And so I introduced myself to him. And as vice president, I was his scheduling officer, right? I scheduled everything that he did. And we were in the White House complex, obviously, during that period of time. In the last nine months, of the Nixon administration was a very difficult and trying experience for the American people because there was the threat of impeachment. There was the the, the Supreme Court that was ruling on the uh, the tapes that would implicate the president of the United States and the felony cover-up and so forth. So I happened to be with the vice president on the evening of August 6th and we were doing some work in the office and and uh, General Alexander Haig, who was chief of staff to the then president Nixon called and said, may I speak to the vice president? May I come over and speak to the vice president? I said, yes. And he came over and stood in front of the desk and, and uh, he said, may I speak in front of Warren? And uh, the vice president said, yes. And he said, Mr. Vice President, prepare to be president. Mm -hmm. That was the smoking gun tapes had just been released by the Supreme court implicating the president of the United States, and I never knew if the vice president had ever really thought about being president about assuming that position, right? And then this is an interesting point of leadership. He turned to me without hesitating. And he said, have the following six people here at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning for a transition team meeting. He not only had thought about it, he knew the six people who were going to be closest to him in that transition. And the next morning as we gathered in that transition team meeting, again, the question is, what has he thought about? How is he thinking about the presidency? He's going to assume the presidency in 48 hours. And so he pulled from his pocket five pages, outlined notes. This is the transition plan. This is what we're going to do. He had not only thought about the people he wanted around him, but the very specific plan of the ascension to power as the president of the United States. It was a remarkable display of of leadership, I thought at that moment in America's history. So to be there during that time, to see that history unfolding was an even more humbling feeling, right? That that this was going to be recorded for all time as one of the pivotal points in American history, and um, and it was, and it turned out to be an exciting and interesting time. But I was just privileged to be there. I was honored to be there, um, and it was uh, it was very interesting. I might go on if I might, Tim, to tell you another story. But sure, uh, about thirty days into his presidency, it became clearly obvious that that I was the dumbest kid on the block. I wasn't the <laughs> smartest guy there, and I'll I'll just to to impress your listeners and viewers, I'll. I'll drop some names. I'm just doing this to impress. But if you look at the senior White House team at that time that I was on, it was Don Rumsfeld, Dick Cheney, Henry Kissinger, Brent Scowcroft, Jim Baker, Colin Powell, Bob Gates. That's a pretty good group of names, right? And here's this farm kid from Minnesota, right? And And I'm the lesser of all of those people. And it became obvious to me that as I was controlling the president's schedule and attending cabinet meetings and stuff that that I just didn't know as much as these other people. I wasn't as experienced politically. I wasn't as bright as, I hadn't had the worldview that they had had. And so I knew that if I made a mistake, it would become known globally, embarrass the president it would be horrible. So I decided I had to resign. So about, excuse me, about 30 days into, the, into his presidency, we were in the Oval Office with that very same group of people. The meeting was over, they all drifted out. I remained for a few minutes and said, Mr. President, may I speak to you? He said, please sit down. So I sat down, I said, Mr. President, I'm not smart enough. I'm I'm not experienced enough. These other people are all better. I'm gonna make a mistake. I'm gonna hurt you. I don't wanna do that. Here's my letter of resignation. And I put it on his desk and he looked at the letter but he swiveled his chair, looked across the South Lawn of the White House and the Rose Garden for what seemed like six or eight hours probably about 10 seconds, right? I was a little nervous at the time. He turned back to me and he said, you know, Warren the fact that you've told me this qualifies you to be here. The fact that you are vulnerable, honest and transparent means you meet my values and therefore I know I can trust you. And -hmm. from that point on, he trusted me with things that no 29 year old farm kid should ever be trusted with. And, uh, and we had a nice relationship and, and I stayed there for three and a half years and it was really interesting. Really interesting.
0: Yeah. That that's fascinating. And, and, and I don't want us to get too off track because there's so many things that I want us to discuss other than that. But, but, you know, Ford to me is always just a great study in in our democracy, in our constitution, in leadership, all types of things, because he really wasn't elected. He he right. he came in as a appointed vice president to fill a role that someone had 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 left, and then same thing as president. And then one of the things that was interesting, this is a recollection that I have as a as probably a preteen at about that time, was that he was often portrayed in a very, um, I don't know if it's a clumsy way and all of that, but the studies I've done, I've never seen that. And so I guess one question I have for you is that very often people in those roles, there's the way the media portrays them, and then there's the way they actually are. And you've just given a glimpse behind the scenes of two things. Is there anything else you can share that might be not the perception that most of us would have about uh, that president that we had?
1: Well, one is the media portrayed him as clumsy. And Chevy Chase made a career out of it, right? It yeah. <laughs> was fantastic. Uh, the fact is, he was a big guy. He was 6'3, he was 230 or 40 pounds. He was an All American football player. Mm-hmm. And, and he bumped his head a couple of times, he stumbled a couple of times. Okay, that's what's given. We all do. It's just that he was caught on camera doing it, right? So, nothing. Mm-hmm. The other thing was he was an absolutely dedicated husband and family man. Mm. He was always concerned about his family and very thoughtful of his wife, Betty, and his children and uh, integrated them into what he was doing as the president. And he never thought he was the smartest guy in the room. He was a very humble guy. Maybe that was part of his Midwestern roots, you know, but he was at that time, he was the only lawyer from an Ivy League institution to be the president of the United States he had a very distinguished academic career at the University of Michigan where he played football and at Yale University where he got his law degree he was a very smart guy but he he was always so humble he didn't need to show that right he just didn't need to he didn't need to brag he didn't need to project himself in any particular way so when i talk about humility being important in the leadership process uh, he was a great example of that
0: Right, and you know, I want to do one more thing before we move off this topic. You you mentioned some names earlier, Rumsfeld, Gates, uh, Scowcroft, some of those. And and for the younger listener, I want them to know that the names that you rattled off there just quickly, they literally were people that were in the upper leadership echelons of our country for the next thirty years. Am, yeah. am I doing the math right? That's correct, mm-hmm. right?
1: Yeah. You're exactly right. Yeah. Multiple
0: yeah. administrations. Yep. Uh, you know, I think Rumsfeld just recently passed away, I believe. He did.
1: Yeah. Just last week.
0: Yeah. He always fascinated me, especially when he was under, you know, George W's uh, because he was a very, he didn't seem to care much about uh, uh, flowery or anything language. He was pretty matter of fact guy. Is that correct? Right.
1: Very straightforward guy. Very straightforward. <laughs> and you reported, he he reported to him.
0: It. Did you report to him? Is that correct?
1: I did. I reported to him twice a day, every day. That's right.
0: <laughs> Very Never good. Never minced words. All right. So, so last question on that, and then we'll move along because I want to get to some real, I want to see some leadership stuff. And I know you've interacted with more leaders in the last 20, 30, 40 years than most, but, uh, but I, I do have a question. Have you ever thought about the path that your life would have gone on? Had you not been in that role? Because it was only a, f- a few years, if I've looked correctly, but yet you get on a podcast like this and one of the first thing that Tim wants to ask about is those two years when you sat you know, at the feet of presidents and things like that. Have you ever considered what things would have been like had that not occurred?
1: Yes, and I think it's like a lot of our lives, the twists and turns of our lives. Serendipity plays a role, right? Uh, sometimes it's premeditated, sometimes it's chance. But uh, it, it probably would have been different. I can think that from that point on, Almost all of the things in which I was engaged from that point on had reference back to the time I spent in the White House, the relationships that I built, the friendships that I built, the business opportunities that I had, those kinds of things. So certainly my life would have been different. It would have been just as rich, just as fulfilling, just as much fun. It just would have been different um, because I think we decide, we decide what our life is like. I don't think others decide for us. So I think it would have been just as much fun. It would have been slightly different. That's all. But sure. it was a, it was a great platform of learning for me. And then I could use that learning and apply it to various circumstances and situations. And uh, there are some of those personalities, lifelong friends who helped me in doing some things in business and facilitated some of those business activities. And that was all very helpful and very important.
0: Right, and 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 I love, because you you really moved into a business setting and we'll ask about that in just a moment, but one of the things I love is that you've got a perspective from both the political arena and entrepreneur, business owners, CEOs. And I think many people spend just their time in one or the other. They aren't able to bridge that. So so I, I guess I will ask at this point, maybe I see a theme developing just so you know, this is kind of the way I flow. I kind of see us looking big picture leadership and then going down more from a, a macro down to micro and and really getting involved with some of the principles and the things you, you brought up earlier, but also that they're in the book. But I'd love for us at this point maybe to talk about some of the contrast, maybe not even contrast, comparison between that political environment that since the 70s, and you were there at a very interesting and at times ugly time, yeah. and then we've just seen some very interesting things the last few years. Talk a little bit about the similarities, the contrast between the political environment, leadership there, And then we're going to start looking at the business environment, CEOs, uh, entrepreneurs, and all that.
1: I think business leaders often think that if we applied more business principles to public life and to the government, Mm. that it would be better. And yet the worlds are so different. Mm. They're so remarkably different that it's oftentimes very difficult to apply the same kinds of principles or the very specific principles that we use in business to a public setting. For example, in in the private setting, it's about profit and loss. It's about revenue and so forth. That is not even important in the public sector, right? It doesn't even exist. Profit and loss doesn't exist. Supply and demand doesn't really exist. So those two principles alone are just sort of different than the usual, right? So this notion that we can compare the two directly is very different. But I think leadership is very comparable. The qualities that we have as leaders in the public sector and in the private sector, I believe are similar. And I think they have to be applied in a similar way And so I think we see oftentimes people who are successful in the public sector also become successful in the private sector. You mentioned Don Rumsfeld. Rumsfeld was very successful in the public sector. But he also led two of the biggest companies in the world in the private sector and was eminently successful at both of those. Dick Cheney, who was very successful in the the public sector after leaving as Secretary of Defense, became head of Halliburton and he doubled the size of Halliburton in just two and a half years. So he applied some of those same principles of leadership. When we get below the leadership level, the macro level and into the micro level, there are many things that are different. How money is allocated, how it's appropriated, how we use resources in the public sector versus the private sector, quite different. But I think at the leadership level, at the macro level, I think there's some very strong similarities. Successful leaders are successful leaders. Sure. And they can do that in the public and private sector. So I hope that answers
0: your question. It it does, but I'm gonna I'm gonna drill down just a little bit farther, and it, it'll maybe have a little bit of a negative slant to this question. Mm-hmm. But I think it's to for us to learn when you look across the landscape today, 2000, and we're recording this in 2021. And and you look at leadership as a whole. You you look at the political environment. You look at even business and and all. What concerns you? When you look across the landscape and see some of the things that we're seeing, let's maybe stay in that political arena right now because there's there's some things that bother me <laughs> greatly. I'll just go ahead and say it right up front. What are some things that concern you about that? And then I'm and the flip side I'm gonna ask you, what are some things that you are very encouraged and 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 you like the way it looks? But what concerns you?
1: Well, the erosion of public trust in, in, in American institutions. Mm. Um, I think we are a level of distrust in American institutions across the board. That's very, very difficult. The current rating of the American Congress is about nine percent, for example. Yeah. Uh, the presidency is in the thirty-five to forty to forty-five percent. Right? Uh, Trump never got above fifty percent during his presidency in terms of trust. I think we're seeing that in the Supreme Court. We're seeing that in other government institutions across the board. So the erosion of public of trust in public institutions, I think, is a big is a big issue. The second is the absence of American leadership. I think many people are choosing, many great leaders are sitting on the sidelines because the public environment has become so difficult and so challenging and so personal in the attacks that many are choosing not to engage. And and in an American democracy, a republic, there is a mandate for the best of the best to serve some time in public life and then go back to the private sector because we're a nation of citizen patriots. We're not a nation of career politicians. We were founded and born, if we read the Federalist Papers and the Constitution, it's about you and I, Tim, taking time out of our lives to go serve in public for a while and then return, to give our best to our Republic and our democracy and then return. Today, we see the advent of a political elite, people who want to be in power and want to be a part of the power power process for their entire life. They start as young people thinking they want to be president, want to be senator, and they build their life to do that. It becomes a career for them. And the United States was never, never designed for that. American democracy was never designed for that. So I think those two things, the absence of great leadership and the erosion of public confidence in institutions. The third would be the role of media. And how the media has become an interpretive process about what's right, what's wrong, what's acceptable, what's not. And themselves have become not objective arbiters of news, but promoters of viewpoints in news and attempting to persuade and influence the American electorate and American population as to what they should think. I think that's a dangerous place for the media to be. And I think that's changed a lot. Now, if you think about my lifetime, Tim, When I was in college, we had four American leaders assassinated, Hmm. Malcolm X, John Kennedy, Bobby Kennedy, and Martin Luther King, all in the time I was at a university. And then we roll forward to the Vietnam era, where when we lost 58,000 men and women in Vietnam, and when the others would come home from war, American citizens spit upon them, yelled profanities at them for serving in that war. And we lost another 150,000 after they came back suicide, disease, Agent Orange, all that sort of stuff. And then we roll that forward to an era now where we see this polarization of American thought, political thought, and the personal attacks that are being leveled on politicians and by politicians on citizens. And that's also, all three of those were separate and distinct periods of American history, but they're also very telling about the direction American history is going. And I think we have to be very thoughtful as American citizens. Now, I would caveat that by saying, Tim, I believe in America. I believe in the citizens of this country. And I believe that we ultimately make the right decisions. Now, we may do some silly things and goofy things along the way and make some bad decisions. Mm -hmm. But I think on balance, we get it right. I have a lot of confidence in the American citizens. And I think we get it right most of the time.
0: Right. You had mentioned that uh, there's a extreme lack of trust, and I was going to kind of follow that up and say, is it justified? And then you went into the media, which to me is what is partially that issue. I mean, I, I grew up at a time when I was in Atlanta when, you know, Ted Turner decided we needed 24-7 news. <laughs> and, and all of a sudden now, instead of three channels and, you know, Walter and a couple other people on TV, now we've got 24-7 and they have, something, they have to have something to say. And uh, do you think that the lack of trust is justified from the American people to the leaders that we have specifically in Washington and in our political environment?
1: Yeah, I think think it is justified in some ways. Uh, For example, I think we've had leaders historically who have been brutally honest with the American people. I mean, you think of FDR, you Mm -hmm. think of Harry Truman, right? Dwight Eisenhower, you think of some people, Ronald Reagan in some cases. I think We're very direct and very honest and very candid with the American people about options, choices and decisions. Um, And I think that's been displaced. And I think elected officials now say what's convenient to some degree. They'll say what's fashionable. They will support someone or something because it's in their best interest, not because it's right or not because it's wrong, but simply because it's in their best interest. And so I think we are looking at this political elite again as people who want to stay in power. And they often will say and do whatever is required to stay in power. And I think that's always a dangerous thing uh, for a democratic republic. I think that's just a dangerous place to be. So is there less confidence in leadership? I think so. And I think justifiably so at this point.
0: Sure. So what encourages you? You look around at the landscape and go, boy, I really like
1: this. I really love and like the young people who are coming through our system. I love millennials, I love Gen Z. I think as I look at our children and grandchildren, I look at their friends and I I spend time with these groups of people, I think we've got great people coming up. I think we've got great leadership coming up. They may be different, they may think differently than our generation, my generation, that's okay. Every generation has, every new generation has. But I think they have a great opportunity to change the world. And I have every confidence that they will.
0: Yeah, it's been exciting in my role. There's been a few times that I've interviewed some young startup uh, companies, some in their dorm rooms, in fact, and I've stepped away in the RV and I've walked back to, uh, to my wife And I said, by the way, I feel pretty good about the future after talking to those folks. So uh, I agree with you. So that's exciting. You know, something let's kind of shift a little bit. Well, oh, no, I do have one more question before that. In your book, you talk about that you made a list of 100 things that you were going to do. You did it back early in your life, 100 things that you wanted to achieve and accomplish. And there were two things that you hadn't accomplished. One of those was to visit all the countries in the world, but you were close. And the other was that you had written down, you wanted to be president of the United States. If Warren Rustan had become, or would become, I mean, you're still a, still a young man, but let's just say uh, maybe that's passed by, I don't know. But had you become president, give me a couple things that would be first and foremost in your mind that you would do based on your experience and background.
1: Well, the first is to build an inclusive presidency, not an exclusive presidency. It's, it's to understand that uh, we're a nation made up of immigrants and we're a nation made up of all different colors and shapes and sizes and genders, and that they need to be reflected and be a part of anything we've done. And we've always tried to do that within the companies that we've led is to be inclusive, not exclusive. We think that's really important. The second is to trust the judgment of the American people and to be honest with them, to put the truth out there, because I believe the truth serves us well. And I believe that the truth as we know it, and given we can have different interpretation of the facts, We can have different interpretations of circumstance, but I think the leader of the free country has to be willing to put out there what he or she understands to be the truth and then allow the public to make their judgment about that. I think too often we obfuscate the truth. We obscure the truth because it's not politically expedient. And I think that's always a mistake that politicians make, right? So I think those kinds of things are really important. On public policy, I think you have to have healthy debate. I don't think it's one party or the other. I really believe in collaboration and consensus. And I think you have to find compromise and you have to find the middle ground because members of Congress, members of the administration represent all Americans and they need to find common ground among the many perspectives that are out there in American society today. So finding that in a collaborative process I think is really important. So among the many things that you could think about that we could talk about in regard to that, uh, those would be three of the principles I think that would be important.
0: Yeah, very good. Okay, so as much as I would love to continue down the political route, I want to shift because I can get, I because I I've got some uh, uh, concerns about some things I see at our leadership level, and it sometimes gets me a little bit, a little bit stirred up. But I want to shift a little bit here. When we uh, when we first started talking, you and and this never occurred to me when I was reading through the book, but it hit me right when we first started talking, Warren you mentioned that you had essentially had the opportunity to be in leadership roles from a very young age. Uh, you know, you were president of your student body in, in, uh, in high school, which oddly enough, so was I. And then you were obviously in college and other things like that. And, and one of the things that it kind of jumped out at me, there is this conversation that people have that leaders are born, they're not made that leaders are born into those type roles, positions, skill sets, whatever. And in some ways your story seems to back up the fact that some people are just leaders from the time they step into this world, but I bet that's not the way you actually think. So talk a little bit about that because I also know you teach and share with a lot of people. So so let me just kind of give you that softball and you take that and you, uh, you hit it over the fence.
1: Yeah. I mean, are they, are leaders born or made? Right. Uh, and I think we have instincts as a part of our natural Mm -hmm. personality and other things that come with the genetic package that we're born with. So I think that's part of it, but I think it's an acquired skill set over time. I -hmm. think we learn, we grow, we change, we adapt, we apply. And I think if we do that, we can continuously grow our leadership. And I think we could take almost any personality type, and we could expose them in certain ways to certain opportunities. And they would learn from those opportunities, take those lessons they've learned, apply them to their future experience, and they could become leaders. So I think it's an acquired skill set over time. Do I think there are natural instincts that some leaders have about discerning the truth or about how to use power or how to interpret people, you know, how to understand people? I think those are all things that are instinctual, but, um, and they make up a part of the leadership package. But I think the greater part of the leadership package really is the acquired skills. And I think we can all, we can all do that.
0: Yeah. And, and I love that. You know, you'd mentioned something earlier about president Ford, his Midwest upbringing. And, and I know that you, you know, talked about, you, you grew up on a farm and it, it seems as if there are some things about attitude mindset and all that, that have happen to help people out. But I agree with you. I have seen people that have come from situations that no one would say they had the quote unquote success or opportunity, but yet they've risen because of those skills. So we're going to talk about those in just a moment. Cause you lay those out really well in, uh, in your book. Uh, one question I did want to ask you though, you speak some about your wife, Carson, and I wanted to ask cause I, I've long said that uh, a great part of success and leadership is who you've chosen to have as your life partner and it seems as if you did very well. I believe I did well. Talk a little bit about um, how important it is for, and this maybe even for a younger person that's you know, looking to make that, is how important is that life partner, that spouse when it comes to success and leadership?
1: Well, that's a great question. We've uh, often, it's been said that we're the average of the five people closest to us, right? Mm. And the one person most important is the one we choose to share our life with. Life partner, spouse, however, we refer to that person. The person who can influence us the most is that person. And in my case, I just, I think I got really lucky that she said yes. I mean, she had a lot of options, right? She had a lot of choices.
0: My wife had a lot of options. I married way up the food chain. I don't know if you (laughs) did, but I went way up. I I had my sales skills and everything. I was stretching.
1: (laughs) I think my wife looked at me and she said, Oh, the poor and the disadvantaged. I think we're going to give them a hand up, you know? Uh, So I think. She was, uh, she was just helpful to me. She's been a great partner. She's been a huge part of our life. She's a wonderful matriarch in our family. Um, she's the reason we have a great family, children and grandchildren. We have seven children and we have 19 grandchildren. We all live together on a small farm in Tucson, Arizona. The children have built homes there and we're together every day. And we see each other every day. It's a phenomenal way to live our lives. And we love it. It doesn't work for everyone. It works well for us. But, but I believe the qualities in our spouse are really critical to us. Oftentimes they balance us off. Oftentimes they make us stronger, right? Because they have similar skills. And so I think that in our case, my wife and I are different in many unique ways. She's all about safety and security. I'm all about high risk and adventure. So we have, we're very different in our personality types but we have absolutely the same view of the fundamental values, for instance, uh, that drive our families. Our, our view of clarity of vision, which I talk about in the book, right? Is this notion of where are we going with our lives? how are we going to live our lives? And we really designed that back the first four years of our marriage and we're living the life we designed uh, in the first four years of our marriage. So I think that kind of stuff, and then certainty of intent, right? Another principle, which is that we have a vision for our lives and therefore we intentionally act on that vision all the time. So those kinds of things we're very consistent about very much the same and aligned on, but are still different in our personalities and approach.
0: Yeah. And, and I love what you said there because one of the things I'm not sure that we do enough in our culture and society is to celebrate those uh, those situations where someone like you and Carson have come together and and, and for years and years gone through and, and gone through the challenges and, and come out on top. So thanks for sharing that. I appreciate it. One of the things, Warren, that, uh, you know, we could go so much into detail with this, but you were the global chair. Of the world's president's organization. You've been Global Leadership Academy with, uh, you know, with EO and so many things. So I know you've seen so many leadership examples, and I think it would be doing uh, a disservice if I didn't at least ask just a few learning points from from those positions and roles that you've been in. Plus, you've, you've been a leader of, <laughs> of companies and all also. So, Share a few things, because also I'm looking at my time here. I want to make sure I allow plenty of time to ask a few more details about the book. But um, give a few learning points, uh, some things, maybe uh, positive from those situations that, uh, that may be beneficial to us.
1: Well, the first thing I learned early on was to accept people from where they are at that moment in time. Mm-hmm. That we can't make them over. We can't wish they were something else. Each of us at a moment in time is who we are. Let's accept each other for who we are, and then let's go from there. So accepting a person from where they are in that moment is really critical because they bring with them into that moment all of their life experiences, good and bad, just as I do. And it's the reconciliation of that in the acceptance of each other that becomes really important. And I think sometimes we bring biases and prejudices into our relationships unknowingly or maybe knowingly. I think we have to be very cautious about that because I think as leaders, we have to accept people for who they are and what their potential is. I've often said, don't treat people as they are, treat them as the person they are becoming. If we treat them as the person they're becoming, they have a chance to become that person. But if we treat them only as they are today, we put limitations on that individual. So in terms of my leadership and how I think about leadership, it's the acceptance of people, and then it's the opportunity to go forward together in a collaborative way. So that would be something that's very important. The second is never underestimate the potential of a human being. We've seen so many remarkable stories. You've had them on your podcast, people who no one would suspect they had that capability or that potential, right? And yet it was within them all the time. And they needed that to be unleashed, to be freed. And great leadership always frees the real person to be who they're meant to be. It creates a paradigm within which that person can be them, their full self. And so I think that's another principle of leadership is the necessary understanding and discernment of the human potential of every person that we come across and never put limitations on them. A third principle it seems to me of leadership is getting rid of self-limiting beliefs. So many people today have these self-limiting beliefs. I'm not tall enough. I'm not short enough. I'm not smart enough. My parents didn't teach me that. I had a bad family. I'm too black, I'm too white, I'm too green, I'm too yellow, I'm too brown. Whatever it is, my life was, I came from poverty. We put these self-limiting beliefs on ourselves, which tell us that we can't become who we want to become. And I don't believe that. I think if we look around the world, we see people every day and in our own life experience who have just shattered that myth, who regardless of what their upbringing was or their experience or their challenge or the difficulty have gone on to be extraordinary leaders and people. I think our job as leaders is to clear the runway to allow people to launch themselves into the life they wanna have. And if we do those kinds of things, get rid of self-limiting beliefs, and I think ultimately it's about faith. It's faith in people. It's the greater faith that's really important. The notion that there's a spirit that lives in all of us that we need to develop and fill, and we need to work with that. And I think when we do that, I I say we all, all have to live to the greater purpose the higher good. That's what leadership is about. There's always the higher purpose out there. And that's what our lives should be about.
0: Yeah, I love that. I think think we've all been around leaders that have the ability to suck all the air out of a room. They think that it's all about them. And I think like one of the basic things is what you just said there, knowing that there's always a bigger picture. There's more out there. And I love the faith component of that. One of the things, Warren, that we like to discuss on this show is we talk about something called redefining success, maybe a time or a point in life where, you know, listen, someone can look at a life like yours and read your bio and think that everything has just gone according to plan, especially sometimes we mention things like, you know, you made a list of 100 things as a young person. And, you know, you and you and your wife, Carson, y'all, y'all, um, y'all had a clarity of vision, you laid it out. And that's the exact way it's been. But I know that life doesn't work that way. And I know you don't either. And I'd love for you to maybe share either in some of the businesses you've been in, because I do know from reading that there's been a few challenges. If you're in business, there's going to be challenges. But what is a time that you had to redefine success, a time that was a big challenge, something that did not go according to plan that you can share with me in the audience just to kind of let us know how you handled it, what you learned from it, what was the wisdom you gained from it? Because I believe those are some of the key times in our lives where we really become leaders when we have to pivot or make a change or adjust. So can you share something like that with us?
1: Well, I think most leaders, Tim, have had failure in their lives. And you show me a good leader, and, and and I want to know where they failed, right? Because they've learned a lot from that failure, and and I'm certainly no exception. And I've failed a lot personally, professionally, um, and 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 I've learned from those circumstances. We had started a business. Uh, we, a good friend of mine, Gary Jonas, and I, who lives in Washington D.C., had had helped build the largest LASIK eye surgery company in the world called TLC Vision. We then had an idea that we could take body sculpting and do the same thing. Some technology from Israel would allow that to happen, where you could through a natural process, get rid of fatty tissue and other kinds of things that were harmful to the human body. And so we leveraged that, we went out and borrowed a lot of money, you know, and got it up and running, got some clinics open, thought we could do the same thing we did with LASIK vision. Um, But what happened was that nobody could predict the 9, 10 financial crisis where elective surgeries went to zero, right? Elective outcomes, even in the LASIK eye surgery business, it was cut in half. Well, this new business at which we had leveraged way more than we should, we had put more debt on it than we should, began to struggle. And so the bank we were with ultimately called the notes due and we didn't have the money to pay it. And in a single afternoon, we lost a lot of money um, as they foreclosed on that. And we had to take it through bankruptcy and so forth. And that's a painful process for someone who thinks we're a successful business person that we can figure stuff out. But the confluence of circumstances combined, to negate our ability to get through that particular time. And so as a result of that, that was a great experience. One, we leveraged too highly. We put too much debt on the company. Two, we had better pay attention to the macro financial and global issues that are affecting businesses because they could come back to hurt us. And we hadn't done that. So we learned important lessons. It was an expensive lesson, much more so than my college education, but it was one of those lessons that we had to learn. And we had to go through that little trough of failure then have more success later on and i think that happens to a lot i think you and i would agree that biblically uh, it's predicted that we will have adversity in our lives we all know that to be true and it doesn't say just one time that we'll have adversity over the course of our lives those are the teaching moments of our life those are the humbling moments of our life and we have to be prepared to accept that rather than fight that. And I've had many of those examples. I've had examples where I've disappointed someone, I've made a decision that's, that's hurt someone else, not intended, but the consequences, the byproduct of my decision hurts someone else. And I had to go there and say, I'm sorry, forgive me. You know, oftentimes we have trouble forgiving ourselves, but very often we have trouble asking forgiveness from others. And I think that's an important part of humility and leadership is the ability to say, I'm sorry, I made a mistake. Will you forgive me? Or in some cases, simply to forgive ourselves and go on. And in the case of losing all that money with my partners and I, I had to be able to forgive myself for making some stupid decisions. And I had to ask their forgiveness as well.
0: Yeah, and I I think that's important. And I I think it's important for, uh, especially males, it seems like sometimes we have to say this more than others. I actually recognize when we went through a few business struggles that I was dealing probably with some shame that just, it really bothered me that I had gone through that situation and possibly similar. And, uh, you know, some of it's just forgiving ourselves and saying, you know, and, and you, you brought it up interesting, you know, we call it a failure. But if we gain wisdom, if we become better on the other side, if we've already been told we're going to deal with adversity, is it really a failure? I, I don't know. I think society calls it that. But anyway, I, I love that. I, I appreciate you sharing that because I think it's important when people look at a life like, you know, when we read a bio like yours and and others, some people don't see those little blips or challenges or adversity or failures, whatever you want to call them. So thanks for sharing that. You know, you know, one of the things, Warren, that uh, that you bring up in the book is you talk about, I think you mentioned that you're currently mentoring and I don't know if these numbers are still accurate, right around 35 CEOs that you're a mentor for. and. I would like to ask a few questions related to that. First question is, I consider myself a coach and I wanted to ask you how you define the difference between say mentor and coach. And then as a follow-up, I'm just gonna give you the next question and let you just go. I'd like to find out how you physically mentor and work with what's your logistics? How often do you communicate and interact with 35 CEOs that you may be interacting with at one time?
1: For me, the difference between mentoring and coaching is fairly simple. I think coaching, for the most part, has a prescriptive process that they take someone or an organization through. And it's a very thoughtful, very diligent, very disciplined process. And And I think that's great. And there are lots of coaches like you who do great work. And I appreciate you. Mentoring is coaching in the moment. It's taking the person where they are, what their challenges, problems, and difficulties may be, and thinking them through with that person in a way that allows them through self-discovery and self-awareness to create their own answers. And it's a very different process. It's not prescriptive. It's spontaneous. Uh, it's very interesting in how it challenges one to do that because it's very, very through adaptive, adaptive processes, you've got to be allow, allow someone to, uh, to increase their self-awareness and then have self-discovery as to what the answers are. And I think that's just a very different process. Now, insofar as how often I meet, the number is actually 40 today, not 37, the 40, it's 30 40 today. I meet with them an hour Zoom call weekly, bi-weekly or monthly, depending upon what we're working on at a moment in time. The other thing is I I mentor across their entire life, holistically, not just in business. So it's family, business, community, and self, the four buckets that I talk about in the book. Almost everything we do fits into one of those four buckets. And there are times when the greatest challenge a CEO has is in the confines of their own home. And if they can't get that right, they're not going to be much of a leader because it affects how we lead. There are times when the demands of our business is so great that we have to have an understanding family that is going to allow us to deal with those big issues because it affects perhaps even thousands of people, employees, and associates and colleagues. And there are times when we have to really focus on the community. And I would say during the pandemic, we needed to focus on our families and our communities, because there were so many people who were hurting during this period of time and still are hurting, that we have as leaders the opportunity to reach out. Something you said earlier, five or 10 minutes ago, talking about, I believe that the happy leader is the aligned leader. I believe when the body mind, soul, and heart of a human being are aligned. Happiness is what a leader is. Optimistic is what a leader is. And I think we have to create that alignment. Maslow in his hierarchy of needs, obviously talked about food and shelter and safety and self-actualization and self-confidence. Just before his death, a few months before his death, he was writing about the sixth state, which is transcendence. Mm. In the book, I talk about that because I believe transcendence or the greater purpose is where we all need to go. We need to change our conversation from I, me, my, to we, ours and us, that we really are all a part of the collective and that we all need to look out for each other and care for each other. And I believe when we can do that, when we can subordinate our interests to the interests of others, we begin to approach that transcendent state. And I think that's where we all really want to be. And I think that's our happiest place.
0: Yeah, I think and I'm hopeful that with what we've experienced as a culture, as a world in the last 12 to 18 months, we'll move more towards selfless versus selfish. And I love I mean, that's a great shift. You kind of mentioned the book. I think it's a great shift for us to go to and, and have some discussion about the leader within us. And as I said, over the last three, four days, I have read it. I love when anyone I mean, i doing what I do. I love uh, when people can tie together a lot of the greats into one great package, which is what you've done here, Warren, because you mentioned Maslow. You also mentioned Dweck and Covey, and you've got so many people that you quote and bring into this book. But my, my first question related to the book is, you know, you, you've you been through a lot of leadership experience in your life, and you've done a lot. You could have written something 10 years ago, 20, 30 probably almost 40 years ago. Why this book and why now?
1: Well, first of all, I just didn't think anybody would be interested in what I have to say. So I think that's, a, that's <laughs> the most interesting part of it. I said, I can't imagine that somebody would be interested in, in my life experience or something I have to say. It's been a large group of friends and some publishers, Forbes and others, that have pushed me over the last decade to write something. There were some some publishers who were in a speech that I gave. And after the speech I gave, they came up to me and said, We think there are five books in just what you talked about today. And I said, Well, thank you very much. That's great. You know, it's good to meet you. And and every six months they would recontact me for the last, I don't know, five, six, seven years. And finally I said, Well, okay, maybe it'll be fun to write something. So I sat down and started writing. And and I'm not a good writer and I don't think the book is well written in that sense, but uh, but um But I wanted to get some ideas out there around leadership that I'd experienced and I'd learned along the way. And then I wanted to cite, as you'll know, in the book, there are about 25 specific examples of people who had real difficulty or challenges in their life, Mm -hmm. who then applied the very principles that I talk about in the book. And it took them to remarkable success, simply the discipline and application of those principles. And so if that book helps one person with one idea, and it changes their life, then makes me happy. That's great. That's wonderful. So, yeah. So, why now? I guess because, you know, that seemed like appropriate now.
0: <laughs> very good. Yeah. It is very rare to see. Basically, you gave, I think you mentioned 25, you gave a glimpse into your interaction and relationship with leaders from a wide range. Uh, that was very unique. Was that intentional at the beginning? Did it just evolve that way? Because I did love hearing the almost testimonials or people talking about y'all's relationship uh, throughout the book, uh, you know, to make, uh, to emphasize points and, uh, and teaching items.
1: Yeah, you know, there, there are lots of things that are written and spoken, uh, a lot of stories, and sometimes they get embellished and sometimes they don't. Um, and I, I wanted to tell the story of these 25 or 30 people, and then I wanted them to testify essentially that it's true. Hmm that we did have that relationship, that we did spend time together, that their growth through these difficult times and challenging times was a collaborative process, that they ultimately are the heroes, right? They ultimately, both men and women who just made courageous decisions under very difficult circumstances to become something they wanted to become. I was just along for the ride. It was great to be there watching them, but they made those choices. They did a great job. And then I wanted them to speak to that and to our relationship, so that people knew that this is what happened, this is the truth, and this is their feeling about that truth. And so I thought that was helpful in terms of the book itself.
0: Sure, you know, Warren, one of the things I love to do when I talk to people that are authors, I've learned this about myself recently and doing some writing, I, I'm, at times I wonder if writing a book is as much about the author as it is about the reader. And so my question related to that is, what did you learn about yourself during this process? Because writing a book is not just a do it on the weekend and be done with it thing. It takes a little bit of time, and you have to reflect on things and interact. What did you learn about yourself?
1: Well, one is you learn that it's a hard process. Just sitting, <laughs> the discipline of sitting down and writing is hard. It is. <laughs> you know, and and so getting that discipline. And getting that work done was was something that's hard. And then the editing process is also difficult. I found it challenging to talk about myself in a very public way. Mm. Things that I shared in the book that maybe I'd never shared before, never talked about before. And so I found that challenging to reach down within myself to say, maybe this is important. Maybe this should be mentioned. So I found that hard. I found that hard. Um, The easy part was telling the stories because they're great stories and, and the successes these people have had is remarkable, it's just remarkable. Um, talking about my growing up on a farm in, in poverty, essentially, you know, I was born poor. And a lot of people don't like to talk about that. I've never really talked about that too much. You know, the, the inside of the White House, I start with the White House story and the day the transition began, the thing we talked about earlier today and sharing that. I, I made a real vow when I was working for the president of the United States that I would not kiss and tell, that I would not write a book about that unique period of history in America. A lot of people have written about it who were there. I've chosen not to because I made a commitment, a promise to the president of the United States. I would never write about he and his family. I got to know them extremely well. I just wouldn't do that. And I'm not going to do that. A lot of people, every year, the Ford library contacts me, contracts me and, and contacts me I in, and wants me to write a book. And, and I just say, I'm not gonna write that book. You know, I'm just not gonna write that book. So I think there's some integrity that goes along with writing it's what we share, what we don't share, what we choose to share under certain circumstances, and I think we have to each each of us decide what that level of integrity is around our personal lives and so forth. And I found that challenging.
0: Yeah, and and I do agree. We just we learn so much, and it's it's not a short process. So we we gain a lot of I think insight about ourselves. I know I have. I do yeah. want to dive in, and 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 there's really one. There's First of all, I just want to let everyone know there's five principles of greatness that you cover in here that are phenomenal. People need to get the book to get all of that, but there's one that I wanted to, in our last few minutes here, to take just a little bit of time with, because to me it almost seems foundational, and maybe you can let me know if that's correct or not, but the clarity of vision is something to me that, that I have noticed with myself, with clients, with people I interact with, that people that are at least closer to some point of clarity about what they're here for, what their purpose is, what they were created for. It seems to me that everything else just continues to build or spill over from that. Is that correct? Am I reading that correct?
1: You are. I I believe that each of us has a purpose. Our job is to discover it. And I don't think that's easy. I think it takes time. It takes space. It takes thinking. It takes prayer in some cases. I think it, it takes us giving our whole self to defining our purpose for our time here on Earth. You know, in the whole history of Earth, a human life, 75, 80 years, is a nanosecond in time. Mm -hmm. It's that quick. It begins with great flourish and sluggishness, and it ends with speed and uncertainty. And during that period of time, we have a chance to make our mark. We have a chance to indelibly imprint upon planet Earth our mortal existence. What comes before and what exists after, we're not so sure about, but we do know this time we can do all we can to be the best human being possible. And there's a great book written by David Brooks, a best-selling book called The Second Mountain. He talks about our early life, which is the mountain of acquisition. It's about ego, it's about branding, it's about materialism, it's about self, right? It's all about the acquisition of stuff, right? And then there's a river that runs between these two mountains and it's a tough river to cross and you can take a boat or you can swim it or you can do whatever you have to build a bridge, but you got to get to the second mountain. The first mountain is called the mountain of acquisition. The second mountain is called the mountain of contribution. It's where we lose ourself and become selfless. It's where we commit to a cause where we're interested and focused on freedom of the human spirit. It's where we move toward transcendence, the greater purpose. Each of us has to discover our greater purpose. Each of us has to understand that. So clarity of vision becomes extremely important as we define who we are and what our life is going to be about. And once we have that firmly fixed in our mind and we, can, we walk into our future, we can taste it, smell it, feel it, know what that vision is, know what that future is, then we can walk ourselves backward and create the milestones that we have to hit in order to achieve that vision. Mm. I think that's the journey we're on.
0: Yeah, and one of the things, Warren, that I think you you did so well is you discussed, and I think you you said this is a little bit later, and, and so I might be tying a few things that don't quite match, but this is what jumped out at me, and I think it's important to know that as an author. You talk about your strategy sessions where you think for two hours a day, and one of the things that I've noticed about myself, I've noticed about others, is that they don't have a lot of clarity because they rarely take time to think and I could hold up, you know, phones and devices and there's so many distractions. You know, you and I are of the age where we remember when, you know, you actually could have quiet time and a lot of people struggle with that. Could you talk more, and this may be our last topic before we begin our wrap up, talk more about your strategy sessions and the importance of being quiet and still and thinking in the year that we're in now, which is 2020. 21 and how difficult it is for most people.
1: What I learned in my time in the White House as a young man was that almost every person that I met at that high level spent time quietly thinking. And I think that's when we get introspective. I think that's when we get inside ourselves and we decide what's really important. And so when I say it takes time and space, I think we need both of those. Now, I do that twice a day as a routine. 10 o'clock in the morning, two o'clock in the afternoon, close my door, shut off my devices, and think strategically and think largely about important things in my life. And I've found that to bring clarity to me. Sometimes I'll get in my car and I'll drive up to the mountains, they're 45 minutes away and I can sit on the edge of a cliff and I can just think, right? And I can have this big expanse out in front of me. I understand how small I am in the context of everything and how unimportant I am. But in my sphere, with my family, right? With my close friends and so forth. I'm important and, and how I think and how I feel and how I carry myself is important. So I have to think about those things to be sure it's clear. You're right. I think we're easily distracted today because our device has everything we need, right? It's right there in front of us. It's so easy. So I think we need to shut those things down and we need to spend some time. We've worked hard with our children and grandchildren to do that. And I can say that our, our children and grandchildren just aren't enamored that much they use it for business purposes or they use it for informational purposes, but they put aside, they're so busy living life that they don't have time to be on their device all the time. So I, I think there is this notion that, uh, we have to have clarity quick story. I was having a dinner, uh, 25 years ago with four mountain climbers, three mountain climbers and myself. And I, I asked each what they're going to do over the next quarter century. And the first one said, well, I'm gonna just keep climbing mountains. i of climbing mountains. The second one said, well, I'm gonna climb some of the highest mountains on the seven continents. And I said, that's great. And then I asked the third one. I said, what are you going to do? He said, I'm going to climb Mount Everest by the time I'm 25. Who had the clearest vision about where they're going? Well, his name was Jamie Clark, lives in Calgary, Canada. He, he conquered Everest when he was 21, 23, and 25 because he had a clear view of where he was going. Then all he had to do was act intentionally on that every day. I think we can achieve everything we want to achieve. And I think it's in our mind and in our hearts and bodies to be able to do that. And I think sometimes we aren't clear enough about what it is we want.
0: Yeah, Warren, that's so good. And I think one of the things I want to do here kind of is my final question before I wrap and let people know where to find you. I know with all of the years that you've been in a role, leadership role in the wisdom, that you could speak to a a leader, but let's say even a young leader, that might be struggling right now. They might be questioning their position. They may not have clarity of vision or something like that. And I just want, just take a few seconds, a minute here, right as we're wrapping up. And I would love for you to speak directly to that leader to just encourage them, uplift them. I know you're in a great mentoring role. I know you don't know specifically but I believe that you probably know some things that that leader may be going through. So can you do that? Just take a moment and just speak directly to a leader that might be in a tough spot right now. I think it would be great to hear you do that.
1: Well, the first is for you to understand that you have unlimited potential and that you have all the tools, skills, appetites and desires necessary to achieve everything that you want to achieve in your lifetime. But the one thing you must apply to that is discipline. Jim Collins in his book, Good to Great, said greatness is not a circumstance. Greatness is choice and discipline. People choose to be great and then discipline themselves to be great. So make that choice and then discipline yourself to do that. Our youngest son once said to us as he was going off to a great adventure, he said, dad, what is it you want me to learn? And I came back to him after I thought about it for about 24 hours and I said, son, there are four things that I want you to learn about your life. First, learn to love. Love the people around you. Love the people with whom you associate. Love your family. Love everyone with whom you have contact. The second, learn to learn. Be a continuous learner, always growing, always changing, always embracing new knowledge. Third, learn to serve. Always be a servant leader. Always know that your interests need to be subordinated to the interests of others. Make other people successful, and they will make you successful. And lastly, is learn to become. That we're all in a state of becoming. That this is just one long journey. There may be a few water stations along the way, but there really aren't any destinations because each destination prepares us for the next part of the journey. So learn to become become all you're capable of. And then you will serve the the test of time, which is this mortal existence to give all we can and all we have.
0: Mm. Wow, that's powerful. Thank you so much. I'm so honored that I paused to ask that question. That was very good. How can people get in touch with you? Where can they find the book, The Leader Within Us? I highly recommend people get that because we only scratched the surface of that. So where can they get that and where can they find you?
1: Well, they can go to website Warren Rustand, R-U-S-T-A-N-D.com. There are Facebook episodes there. There's uh, other information that would be helpful. Um, Amazon probably is as good a place as any to get the book and uh, hope that you'll enjoy it and hope you'll make comments about it and let me know what you think about it, it'd be great. So. There are lots of ways to get in touch with me and I'm happy to always hear from people.
0: Yeah, and I highly encourage people to do that and just tap into some of this wisdom that you have. Warren, we are Seek, Go, Create here. And the question that I love to wrap up with is those three words. I'm going to want you to choose one over the other two that currently resonates with you more. Seek, go, or create. Which word and why?
1: I think they're all three really great words. So it's a difficult choice. I would choose go, actually. Hmm. Um, because I'm a I'm a person of action, a person who want, wants to do things. And so I figure in the going process, I can also create and I can also seek, but I have to do. And I think what we've been asked to do during our lifetime is to go serve others and to help others. And you can only do that by getting out of our rocking chairs and taking action.
0: Wow. Thank you, Warren. Uh, as I said earlier, it's been such an honor to have you here. I highly recommend people go get the leader within us. I've just read that it's a fantastic book I've got highlights throughout that we could have had a long conversation on just get the book. I am so appreciative to Warren taking the time if this has been a blessing to you in any way and I know that it has, I'm going to ask a big favor of you listener and that is to share this episode with anyone that is in a leadership role or that they're seeking a leadership role or they run an organization anything like that, please share this episode. And uh, and one of the things I'd like for you to do is to continue the conversation. You could find us on all our channels. We are Seek Go Create on Instagram, LinkedIn, Facebook, and uh, I think we're somewhere else. I might've been Twitter, and we're also there. So definitely continue the conversation. This has been so great. I appreciate it so much, Warren. I just wanna remind you, the listener, that every Monday, we've got new episodes And we have great, rich conversations just like this. Until then, continue being all that you were created to be.